Welcome to episode, I guess we should call this 199A of No Challenges Remaining, because I'm not ready for 200. I don't think you are, Courtney Nguyen. Hey. Uh, you are in Singapore. I am in Washington, D.C. It's like midnight here, noon there. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm coming off of a much-needed uh, R&R week in uh, Tokyo after um, a very long stint, at least early stint, through Wuhan and Beijing. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, in a very, very absurdly steamy, hot Singapore, uh, getting ready for the WTA finals, which starts uh, over the weekend. It's very, I think, like looking at a map of the equator and, you know, just seeing where it is, you know, uh, latitudinally, you might be like, oh, Singapore could be an outdoor tournament. It's like going to be warm there. Like, no. It is so gross. A gross city to be a pedestrian in. It's just just to be outside in. It's yeah. I mean, there's a reason why, and I don't love like mall culture. Like I, it's like I don't yeah. even like like tiny American malls. I don't like whatever. But yeah, it's a lot for me to like be in Singapore and not be either at the hotel or in a mall somewhere, like eating. Like it's, it's just being outside. If there's one thing that like everybody knows about me on the tour, I hate heat which is hard because I'm a tennis reporter, but I don't like it when it's hot. And so Singapore, whew, it's, a, it's a steamy one. It is a steamy one full of steamy, boiling hot tennis action, which we will get to and we'll get to the field there and how that all shook out in these last weeks. Very Almost all the spots were still at least mathematically, theoretically up for grabs going into Asia. Um, but I guess we'll just sort of start with just big picture. What is your overall sort of, if there was like a, title to this chapter of this book that is the 2017 season what would this sort of wuhan china and i'll throw in like tokyo and seoul and guangzhou in there uh what would you sort of what's the headline story here this part of the year as it as it hit the home stretch for you um yeah i mean i i guess the phrase that that comes to mind is well who would have saw that coming uh, because there was just a lot of drama and a lot of just unexpected results um, through Asia. I don't think that anybody, uh, in including Caroline Garcia, thought she was going to go back to back in Wuhan and Beijing and qualify for Singapore. I mean, just even thinking about that is still a bit absurd to me, um, yeah. just remembering where she was six months ago. So that's crazy. Simona Halep had, had told, she told me she had completely given up on the number one ranking for this year. She was like, I'm not getting it. Um, and she genuinely just stopped thinking about it and stopped caring and boom, <laughs> um, goes on a revenge tour in Beijing and, and gets to <laughs> gets no, world number one, which is crazy. Um, you know, I think those are the two, the, the, the headline results that um, really are stunning. But, you know, even you look at like a Pavlyuchenkova, like three titles now, like that's pretty surprising. Um uh, the season, um, Barbara Stritzova winning, well, she was in Asia, no, I'm sorry, in Europe, but still, yeah, during still this kind of section of the season, you know, winning what, her first title in six years, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's crazy. So yeah, a lot of just like really unexpected results, a lot of, um, and ones that not just are unexpected results, like in the vacuum of, oh, that was a crazy match, but like unexpected results that had like ripple effects on the season. I mean, just talk to Johanna Conta. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, it's just been crazy. And so once again, down down the home stretch, uh, the, the tour finds a way to deliver. And um, I did not see any of those results really coming um, um, this fall. 
No, I, I think you'd think you hit the nail on the head twice there with, I think the biggest surprise was that Garcia managed to pass Conta for a spot in Singapore. Both that both of their sort of trajectories would get so steep uh, relatively quickly. And I mean, it was one of those things, Garcia was such a long shot. It'd be one of those things you'd see her down the stand and you'd be like, is she mathematically eliminated? Probably, but right. like I guess well, she technically, if she wins both Wuhan and Beijing, she could make it. But you would say that with a sort of eye roll sarcasm, and then she actually did it, which is just weird. Um, and then Kanta goes from being one of the most consistent players, certainly on hard courts and, and grass, um, in the and wasn't terrible on clay, um, except for the French Open, uh, uh, for most of the year, and then loses, then can't win a match suddenly down the home stretch, and gives up what had been a pretty healthy looking spot in the race. Um, and you want to pair that with Bledenovich, too, who wasn't quite in the top eight recently, but still also hit a wall after a very good start. There was just a lot of the sort of like looking at the rankings, the sort of analogy I would use almost. It's like there's a lot of imagine like a lot of, I don't know, planes, like airplanes, all flying at like very, very similar altitudes. And that's sort of what the WTA rankings feels like to me right now. Like It's so bunched. There's so much room for movement right now with how close it is between number one and number seven that there's just a lot of shuffling that can happen with just the slightest bit of turbulence, and it makes for a uh, a wild ride. Those are terrible airplane analogies. Airplanes don't fly that close together in real life. That's really a, that doesn't weird. work. But I don't it's know. An odd <laughs> choice. But I understand. <laughs> but I understand what you're saying, and 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 it does lead into Singapore, where. I think the last time I heard, and don't hold me to this, but I think seven players could walk away with the number one ranking mathematically. <laughs> that's like pretty much everybody. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. I mean, I, th- I think going to your that's, point where you say right. like things are right, so bunched yeah. up between one through seven, exactly right. I mean, when you have 1,500 points on the line to finish the season, uh, and it's a straight ad because um, it, it's a bonus tournament, I mean, it's it's everything's up for grabs, and, and which makes the end of the season – you know, kind of crazy, and, and particularly this tournament. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it. I would love to see, and this is one of those things where I'm like, oh, you know, if only you know we had more time to do it. Um, not we NCR, but we uh, the tour side of things, uh, because we just didn't uh, ran out of time a little bit. But I would love to see kind of like this all mapped out in an animation, of just in terms of you know how high certain players were flying through the first six months of the season. And then how exactly did, you know, the Ostapenkos, the the um, the Garcias, um, even a Vandaway who's in position to be potentially the number 10 alternate, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the number two alternate in, in Singapore, uh, ahead of Mildenovich, depending on what happens this week in, in, in Moscow. But just to really track it, because when if you were to take what the race to Singapore looked like in May – after the French Open, and you look at, or even after Wimbledon, and you look at kind of where things really did end up shaking out, it, it there haven't been like huge changes, you know, because at that point, you know, the Wazes, the Halops, the Pliskovas, the Muguruzas all were pretty settled in. But um, I just kind of would want to see it plotted out to, to kind of like the how, like how it all happened. Because there was a point really, you know, especially during the US Open series where it wasn't clear that Ostapenko was going to qualify for Singapore. Yeah, no. And everybody was wondering, oh my gosh, is the WTA going to have to use, you know, that that unused ever and most likely never will be used wild card um, to, to wild card in an Ostapenko or Stevens? And I kept seeing the chatter on Twitter and I was like, no, it's never going to happen. 
I'm pretty, I'm pretty confident in saying that. So it was, it was, but at the same time, it was kind of like you're sweating bullets a little bit, right? Because you're like, well, Serena's out. And if we don't have Ostapenko and if we don't have Stevens, that's only Muguruza, slam winner of the season, plays the finals. But, um, but Ostapenko, what she did through Asia as well, I mean, was, was unbelievable um, also for a player that we just kind of have built in these narratives of being like, we just accept that she's inconsistent because she has mm-hmm. to be, because that's what her game's built on. She was really consistent all through Asia. Didn't take a bad loss once. It was impressive. Yeah, sidebar, and I, I guess there's a lot of ways to go with this, but just quick sidebar on Ostapenko. That, her, like, soul run was low-key my favorite part <laughs> of the fall by far. Yeah, I believe um, that. I know, I, know, I know you weren't there, but, like, it was, the crowds in Seoul were incredible. It's not a small stadium. And it was, if not completely full, at least 95% full, through the semis and finals that I watched. And for, for an international level tournament, it was remarkable. And Ostapenko, yeah, she's a slam champ, but she's by no means an established star. Certainly not what I would call a global star yet per se, but the turn up for her was there. It was it was really cool. So if you have if you didn't get a chance to watch uh, any of Seoul, I would like highly recommend going on your replay function on your WTA TV or however else you can find just clips. Because it was a, it was a weirdly like life-affirming <laughs> weekend for me watching Yasupenko and Seoul. I don't know. It, it just made me happy. Especially oh, it was being fun. Having been in Korea for the Ducky story last year and seeing a little of their tennis culture, but like it's there's a lot of like they're ready for something. If they were like if they bought that hard into Ostapenko, they would I don't know. I would want to say just give them, you know, like I don't know, the tour finals immediately, even that's even obviously very rash. But just something <laughs> they deserve like merit badges for their work. My favorite thing is when people throw around this like give this city a tournament, give this city a tournament. And you're like, um, facilities, um, money, um, Really? I know that's like, not how it works. Come on. Let's everybody stop throwing that around as though it's so easy. Why doesn't Berlin have a tournament? There are reasons. Go ask around. It's pretty simple. Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, I think that one of the cool things about that Seoul tournament was like Ostapenko did that herself. I mean, like as the tournament went on and she, again, much like the French Open, like eked out all these like three setters that were like incredibly dramatic against opposition that she really shouldn't have been playing three setters against as is the Ostapenko way but um the drama and just the way that she plays her tennis it was reminiscent of the French Open where it's like people maybe weren't all in but as like the tournament progressed like the stands got fuller and louder and then it just hit like this ultimate crescendo in the final against Beatrice Haddad Maya um that was amazing and incredible and her whooping up the it was just peak Ostapenko in every way <laughs> and you just yeah, I mean I loved it it was it was really fun to watch uh let's get to the other just sort of made story which we mentioned briefly before we get into sort of big picture things the one other player who deserves note for sure is Caroline Garcia Caroline Garcia. I know she's fairly picky about the pronunciation Caroline. of her name. Caroline. She gets into Singapore. It gets into top 10 uh, really out of nowhere. It, I saw a lot of people trying to make it some sort of morality play with her rise and let him just fall on me at the same time. That's for you to decide. Um, I, I, I think it's good to see. It, it does seem very sudden to me. But according to being on the ground there for both of her wins in Wuhan and Beijing, did you – what, what did you sense – clicking for her what was working so well for her over that stretch that allowed her to not only reach but sustain that level through two uh very impressive runs yeah i mean it's interesting because when i talked to her about it she said that she learned so much because people forget 
that she did make the quarterfinals in Tokyo before Wuhan. So she had already started to get a bit of traction um, before, you know, we hit the ground in China. But she, in the Tokyo quarter, or I'm sorry, the Wuhan, uh, the, uh, yeah, the Tokyo quarterfinal, she, um, she lost in straight sets to Muguruza. And what she said was that she walked off of that court thinking, I was really close. I, I wasn't that far off. But it was a straight set win for her. Like, what the heck went wrong? Why do I feel like I was close, but I was actually so far? And she said she went back and she watched the tape with her father. And it sounds so simple, but sometimes this is just how tennis is. And she was like, I just needed to bring my targets in a little bit. She's like, I, I, I was making the right decision on the shots and I was going for the right shots when I had them, but I was aiming too close for the lines and I needed to bring, make the targets bigger and move it about six to eight inches inside uh, the sideline as opposed to, to aiming for the lines. And she said, tactically, that's really the only thing that changed once she got to, to Wuhan and Beijing. And obviously, I think getting that win over Kerber, a three-set win over Kerber in Wuhan kind of bolstered her uh, confidence. And again, everybody can talk about the state of Angelique Kerber's game that like, oh, that shouldn't, you know, make you walk that much taller if you're beating Kerber right now when she's kind of struggling. But number ones are number ones and and uh, former number ones and players that are Grand Slam champions. And, you know, players take a lot out of that. It's like when people used mm-hmm. to beat Venus when Venus was like still struggling. And it was like, okay, calm down. But it means something to them. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so and then and then the confidence started rolling, but she was serving incredibly well. I just couldn't the game I've always loved Caroline Garcia's game. It's just an aesthetically pleasing game and it's a sure. power game. Um it's fluid, she's athletic in her movement. It just all what it's kinetically perfect when it's on and um but what impressed me were the two things that had always really failed her and has had really held her back and we forget she's only what 23. For some reason, she just, seems just like turned a, 24. Yeah. Yeah. She, for some reason, she seems like in the 25, 26 group in my head, but maybe only because she's been in my head since, you know, since that match against uh, Maria at the mm-hmm. French Open. But, um, but yeah, the two things that had always failed her were her body, which she really struggled with for the first six months of the season, uh, back injury that was really bad. And then, um, uh, just her nerves. I mean, I think Caroline Garcia always had a bit of a reputation of getting nervous and, you know, being, I hate using the C word, but being a little bit of choker and you didn't know if she could like serve out matches and close. And it was like a butterfly had come out of like, I mean, she was a completely different player during those two weeks. She did, never got nervous when she broke and got broken back. She just broke again. Um, she played a bunch of tight matches and got through them. Uh, she was saving break points at an absurd rate. Um, and her body somehow held up over those two weeks. And I didn't think that particularly that was going to happen. I just didn't think that she was going to be physically energized enough to beat a, a good Halep in the final um, in Beijing. And and she was able to do it. And I, it, we were all kind of left scratching our heads. Carol Bouchard and another L'Equipe uh, writer, Quentin, were, were in Wuhan and Beijing. And they, I mean, we were just all watching the matches and they just kept looking at each other. It was like that Lion King, you know, Simba, Nala gif where they're just kind of like what how is this happening no one had any answers but it was incredible it really was and it's just it's one of those sort of just coming together moments and all the pieces falling together really quickly and it was a little bit of the same story in wuhan with ash barty 
Mm, I, think it's more, yes. I think Ash. I think Ash has sort of shown more of a gradual progression over the course of the year, been a bit of a steadier incline, even if Wuhan was a bit of a spike, and they played a really good final there. Um, and Ash probably should have won it, um, being up in the second. But um, but yeah, I, I think both of them sort of on similar pages, and it just shows the importance of maturity sometimes, and sometimes something as simple as yeah, bringing in your margins, like you said, can make a a world difference. And even if it's not the only solution, if you feel like you have a solution. That can be enough too. It's one of those very much like the actual truth is not as important as your. It's your own truth so much in tennis. And Garcia suddenly finding confidence. Confidence can be you know, you know, genuine or sort of uh, contrived. Either way, it works. And for sure, she found whatever she the, found it, it. It helped her, and I just I bet she wishes there wasn't this long gap between Beijing and uh, Singapore so she could just keep rolling because she's definitely hottest player on tour, momentum wise. Yeah, I mean, I think it it benefited her a little bit just physically that, you know, she didn't have to play Tianjin or Moscow to to hold off Kanta. Um, So at least she gets some of that time. She went home. She looked like she had a very relaxing time back back home in Lyon. Um, But uh, but yeah, I mean, it's funny when you talk about contrived confidence. Like, I think that the game's greats, I think you've heard me go on this rant before that like the game's greats are, are delusional. Like they have this ability to like gaslight themselves into believing that something is true when it's absolutely not. Like Serena has this, Maria has this, Vika mm-hmm. has this at times, uh, uh, Caroline um, Wozniacki has it. Um, I think Roger, you know, has it a bit where they can just kind of like convince, oh, everything's fine. I'm good. Yeah. I'm just going to go in and win this tournament. And it, yeah, it, that's it, true. And they can do that. And I think that most of the mere mortals cannot, right? <laughs> when we talk about like, you know, the – the the very human players, um, you know, whether it's a Halep or all the way down to like a Petkovic, they can't, they can't, fi- they can't fool themselves into thinking that something's true when it's not. And so, for yeah. Garcia, I think it, you know that confidence that was rolling was very evident. Like she was just carrying herself differently on the court and off the court, but also she was also very humble about it. Like she was just like, I know that like tomorrow it can end. Like I'm aware of that. Like I'm not fooling myself into thinking that I can play like this forever. Um, so we'll see how, how she pulls up in Singapore. Because you're right. I mean, it's been a two-week break, right? I mean, that's not – game-wise, that's not ideal. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the sort of players who can't self-gaslight, which I enjoy as a term. Um, <laughs> there, I, I, I would definitely put your, your boy Andy Murray in that camp. I don't feel like Murray is much of a self-gaslighter. Nope. And exactly. I, would also even, I would also even say Rafa – I feel like I feel Agreed. like Rafa Rafa is like sort of a kind of a diesel confidence wise like it needs to come from somewhere. He needs to build a momentum. He can't have a crappy stretch. Not that he really has too many crappy stretches in his career, but when he does, I feel like he needs to sort of go step by step climbing out of whatever hole he's in and can't really skip skip steps in the in the process as Anna Ivanovich would say. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that with Rafa and Andy. I would put like Novak probably a little bit more in the like ability to be self-delusional. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not a bad, like, I just want to make sure that this is clear. This is not a swipe. This is something that I find completely admirable. But yeah. it's something that I find that is a pretty consistent thing with respect to the great champions in our sport. That That because of the pressure that is involved in tennis and how elusive confidence can be, that if you can create it out of nothing, like that's a that's a superpower. That's because pretty good. everything about tennis teaches you that you shouldn't be confident because you lose every single freaking week. Yeah. Right? Every single freaking week. Like somebody else is better than you. 
You so like, how can you possibly? Yeah, how can you possibly have confidence? And you can't even <laughs> blame anybody else. It's not a team sport. It's hard to design a more ego crushing sport than tennis. It <laughs> really, really is. True. Like you will lose every week. You will like hit the ball well, and it'll still go out. You'll never be better than a wall. I mean, there's all these things that you just think in the back of your head. That's like, wow, you know, this is I'm not good at this, even if you are good. And I think to mention you mentioned Federer. Sort of, I think Federer is probably the best self gaslighter, and he's also really good. Again, yes. <laughs> uh, but but I think him winning Shanghai um, to switch a little bit to the men uh, and beating and beating Rafa suddenly five times in a row in his career is pretty phenomenal record book self gaslighting. Like I I still am not entirely sure. I, I watched a replay of that match eventually. I was trying to skim through skim through a replay of it. Um, I still don't entirely get how Federer is, has been the best player on tour this year, and I think he has been, even if he is number two. I think his sort of five mostly decisive wins over Nadal, or four this year and one back in Basel last year, I think they sort of support that. Um, yeah, I, 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 I find myself relatively baffled and, and confused by Federer's like, part-time really goodness. Again, it just shouldn't compute, but it, it does for him. He's he's following in a lot of ways the Serena model. Oh yeah, right. I mean, Serena kind of invented and perfected this. I mean, she's really, yeah, really the first kind of one. Not to say part time in a bad way, but kind of like I select the tournaments that I play. Um, I go for the slams, and at the end of the day, because I limit my schedule and and partially and definitely it's smarter because you're older. Like I beat up on everybody, and so therefore, but because I'm not playing all the time, my ranking is lower than other people and it creates this whole complete disconnect right of and in this case it's rafa so like nobody's saying like rafa's an illegitimate number one and he won slams blah, 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 blah. No. but it's still you know it's still the same like uh, effect of that sort of when you have a, a dominant player who kind of isn't there every week um, it does create kind of these situations. Because I, I would agree with you. I do think that 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 Roger has been the better. If I would to, if I were to say player of the year, I'd, I'd probably yeah. go Roger. And as most people know, that that pains me to say that. So. <laughs> I, I would definitely go Roger. I just think that it's been. I think it's been. I sort of talked about this sort of clumping in the WTA rankings. The men, I think that like. Okay, let me look at. Hold, let me think about this. But I think I can confidently say, well. I think Roger's the only player who's had like legitimately a, and Rafa's had a a good year, but I think Rob, Roger's like the only player who's had a legitimately great year. I'm like so unimpressed by everybody in men's tennis. This okay, year. I mean he lost to Donskoy. He lost to he picked <laughs> he picked his he picked his couple of losses for like comedic effect. He lost to Donskoy and he lost to Tommy Haas. I'm, yeah, he, I guess in a regular he lost to the Indian Wells tournament director. Now, after he'd already served a term as tournament director in Hala, I mean, that, there were some bizarre losses that Roger took at uh, a couple of smaller tournaments. But he, when he, it seemed like every time he cared, with the exception of the U.S. Open, where he didn't seem 100% health wise and just had this incredible shit show of a tournament that he somehow still made the quarters of. Um, I think that he kind of turned it on when he wanted to. But like, I was looking at the, or I saw a tweet today, um, was that Marin Cilic celebrating his new career high ranking of number four. And I was like, how the hell is Marin Cilic number four? He, I feel like he hasn't done anything this year. He made a Wimbledon final, 
Which I mean, I was, was gonna, I was gonna say, I was like, you did make the Wimbledon final, right? <laughs> like, right, but it, it, it's deflated for me by the fact that it was like one of the worst Grand Slam finals ever. Um, even if he did make it, he did beat Sam Querrey on on route to get there. I give him credit for that. Um, but it takes a goat to just, do it. Uh, yeah, it does. Um, but I just think that, like, looking at his results, he hasn't had any other good results whatsoever. Zverev, he knocked Zverev out of number four. Zverev's on number five. Almost all of Zverev, more than half of Zverev's points, he's 4,400 points. More than half of those, 2,500, come from just three weeks of Rome, uh, Canada, and Washington, which are not usually the points, the tournaments that make up more than half your ranking when you're a top five player. Um, teams had, I think, a relatively uninspiring year. Djokovic and Murray are both in there, and they both had, by their standards, terrible years. And Murray is still number three, but will continue to fall a lot as he doesn't defend a lot of these points in the fall. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's just been a really, really weird year of nobody playing all that well. The WTA, is, it's, it's clumped. I don't think anybody has really maximized their year, with the exception of Serena, I guess, who managed to squeeze in a Brengel loss, a slam, and a baby, all in pretty record time. Um her batting know, average I, is spectacular. Her slugging percentage is really good. <laughs> exactly. Nobody yeah. slugs like Serena. Her slugging no. percentage is way high. Definitely. She is a cleanup hitter for sure. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just feel like this year, I'm just like weirdly just like, there's some good stories like on the sides if you get down deeper. Like I think, you know, Garcia's had a really good fall, but she hadn't done that much before this. Uh, Barty's had a very good turn. Uh, like Quarry's had a good year. Carreno, I guess, has had a good year, although he hasn't really had very many good wins to get to be a top tenner. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, something about this year just feels really off. It just feels like, like kind of like a strike year in some way. Like a lot of the players were gone, and the sort of scabs took their place, and this is the results we got. And I realize I'm including Roger and Rafa, in that group, but, eh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I just think this has been a very, very strange year on both tours, but particularly the men's when you look beyond Nadal and Federer. And the women's, too. I can't get deny how weird the women's has been, especially when you look at the n- amount of turnover between Singapore Field this year and last year, let's say. And that really shows you kind of the upheaval there's been. But can I ask a question that I ask all the time right around this second of the season and even at the start of the season or whenever, because I genuinely... N- I do not understand this, and I'm not saying this as a defense or anything. I just don't understand it as a way of thinking. Like, I mean, in other sports, there's remarkable turnover year over year, and that's considered great and fun and exciting. I don't understand why, yes, the Singapore field uh, this year looks markedly different from the field last year, and and the men's London field is going to look remarkably different than their London field last year. Um, But why is that necessarily a bad thing? I mean, I understand that, like, you know, if you dig down and you dig deeper into that, like obviously that not that can necessary that can be not be a good thing, but I don't understand why it's necessarily a negative when it's like, oh my gosh, look at all the yeah. upheaval. Like I don't know. I mean, like obviously I spend ninety nine point nine percent of my time covering the the WTA tour, and it's been a crazy two thousand seventeen. And I think that it's every week. I was joking with somebody about this last week that, um. I haven't been able to take much time off this year because it felt like every week when I tried to take a few like half days or take it easy or whatever, like something crazy happened that was notable and that needed to be covered. 
Um, so whether you're talking about like Marketa von Drusheva emerging out of nowhere yeah. to win Beal, you know, like like yeah. Ash Barty. I mean, like all these stories that really just were bubbling and you're like, wait, what? And and um, so you couldn't even just block and be like, oh, well, nothing's going to happen here. It's like, well, you know, stuff was happening all the time. Um, and they were great stories and they were interesting. I agree with you. I think that when you look at like, you know, the WTA top 10, top eight, whatever, however we want to break things up from Singapore or just rankings, everyone had their their moments and then they kind of like had their moments to kind of get past. I mean, this was like, yeah. if, if you, this was like, if you if I were to use a NASCAR analogy, which I don't know if anybody's going to get, but it was kind of like a weird... <laughs> restrictor plate race where like the cars weren't allowed to like max out and therefore because you couldn't just it wasn't just about who's the best player it was about more than that you know and and, and different players surged at different at times and depending on surface or season or whatever i think the restrictor plate analogy is really good and i think that it's on the wta side just they are separate ecosystems so let's talk about them separately wta side I think has been this very restricted plate, very like all Peloton, no breakaways kind of. Yeah. Um. In in racing. Look at terms. us. We know other sports, man. I this know, is right? Like impressive. We're just like throw out all these like weird racing sports. Like, yeah, I talk about cycling. I know what the you know yellow means. I think there's um, a new board but, racing. There's a new bike racing board game out that I want to try called Flamme oh, Rouge. Yeah? If anybody's played Ooh. it, let me know. Okay. Um. <laughs> but yeah, I I think I think that uh it's it's made it. It's worked out well on the women's side. It's made it for competitive matches. Even if, like, big picture is very muddled and just sort of looks gray from a distance and nothing entirely stands out. And it's very hard to, like, for example, I had to cast a player of the year vote for WTA recently on my ballot. And um, I went through it, and I I don't think my candidate won this election. I'm guessing it went to Muguruza. But I wound up voting for Alina Svitolina. Because um, look at you she, respecting the tour, right? Because I figured if people are just gonna people giving Muguruza the player of the year because she won Wimbledon seems so dopey to me. Like her prize for winning Wimbledon is winning Wimbledon. Let's like look at the rest of the tour. It's so packed in there. I think you can make a case for any of them. And Svitolina did win three big tour events in uh, Dubai and Rome. She leads the tour in titles. She leads the tour in wins over top 10 players. That's what I was going to say. Her top 10 record is really good. That's what really like kind of sold me. She was when the best faced off against each other. Svitolina was repeatedly coming up big and not at majors, but I think majors are kind of their own thing. And I don't know. It was just, it was a year where you could pick a lot of different things and make arguments. So I went with Svitolina. I don't think she would have won the contest, but I think. I respect that 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 vote though. It was a hard ballot across the board. It was it was a, a tough people, ballot. Yeah, a couple of people weren't in categories I wanted them to be in. Like I wanted to vote for Barty in like two categories that she wasn't in. In what? It was like she, I think she wasn't in Most Improved, and I wanted to vote for her there. And she was in Comeback, but I wanted to vote for her in both Most Improved. And I wondered if she counted as a newcomer. Yeah, newcomer. She made didn't she make her top hundred debut this year? She did in singles. So I thought she would have been eligible for newcomer, um, even if she. I think she had been on the newcomer ballot way back when she made those three slam doubles finals uh, mm. in 2013. I think she was on the, Maybe that's why she can't be newcomer <laughs> four, five, yeah, four years I after mean, you were previously a newcomer. You would think that I would know these rules, and I don't. I, I just yeah. I just get the ballot, and I'm like, oh, okay, this is what we're doing. Um, yeah. Comeback is an, an interesting one. Yeah. 
Comeback, yeah, so, comeback was a tough one, I thought. not I, Well, I personally didn't think it was tough, but I kept hearing from people, oh, it's really tough. And I'm like, but com- okay, comeback whatever. Is always, comeback is always tough because you're like grading people's like comparative adversity, which is just kind of icky but, uh, in some ways. Yeah, but in this and situation, then, I feel like there was clearly one player who went through a level of adversity that was a little bit more extreme than everybody so, else's. So I voted for Petra Kvitova. And I so did I. I'm guessing, I'm guessing you did too. But the alternate argument is, for Sloane Stevens is that she came back and won a slam. So she got to a higher mountaintop after her own injury. So it's just like, it's a whole sort of like, how, what do you value more? Like how low you were put or how the sort of hand you were dealt or what you did in your actual up, you know, rebound effort. So, I value somebody who nearly had her hand cut off and then came back and played tennis. I think that's I, how I'm going to value it. <laughs> I'm, with, I'm, with, I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that. I like if understand. I could stump speech, yeah. that would have been my stump speech on that one. I always debate whether or not, because we always have this discussion internally, like if I should like write out like who I'm voting for. Like, and I, and I never go back. I go back and forth. I'm like, should I? Should I not? Like, is that cool? I don't know. And we haven't done it the last two years. We used to, we used to go over our ballots on the show. I know. I know. Obviously, you're yeah, with so you're in a different position now. But I'm trying to yeah. think of the other awards. I voted ballots for newcomer. I think that was just kind of. I did obvious. too. Um, I mean, I can say people. I just like I, whether or not I should write yeah. it out is a different thing. Right. I voted Muguruza on Player of the Year. Okay. Not because because you're I think that you oversimplify her season because you're focusing on Wimbledon, but in actuality, like, and I had been saying this, and you know I've been saying this since in the first three months of the season. I was like, Garbina's been like weirdly consistent, like, and she wasn't making like you know at that point in the season like making like finals, and I think at that point maybe she hadn't even made a semi, but she had been oh no she did she made that semi in Brisbane, but she had been playing better. Her results she wasn't taking shocking losses. She had a, a bunch of retirements, like injury retirements, and a lot matches, of retirements, but, yeah, yeah, which was kind of stunning. But I, but I don't know, like, like watching it, I was like, I feel like she's playing a lot better actually on the tour level. Um, and so, yeah, obviously Wimbledon's the high point, and then like how she 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 won Cincinnati was absurd as well. Um, uh, but but yeah, it was. I thought that she had a way better tour season. If you take all the slams out of it, she had a way better tour season than people actually give her credit for. In That's my fair. opinion. I- I think yeah, I think she's I think she's gonna win this award, um, but I think yeah, I don't know. I just well, again, it's like John I, says he he's like I'm sorry, you have to win a slam in order to be eligible for Player of the Year, and I just I don't really buy that at all. But like, didn't Caroline get Player of the Year in years past, or maybe not? Maybe she lost it to Serena. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know yeah, if there's ever been a slamless non-slam winning, but then t- all, two of the slam champs weren't on uh, the ballot, and then. Ostapenko, I think it's very hard to make a case for, considering she never broke the top five. And then that leaves you with Mukuruza, if that's your logic. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I'll, that's, I will that's also say, that's, yeah. I get, I always, and I voice this every year, I really don't love that this is done before the season is over. I completely agree. I think, I I think, think that season, what happens yeah. in Singapore will dictate very significantly, because of all the bunching, who I think had the best 2017 season. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, and I think, and I think to my previous, your previous point about restrictor plates, which was good. Um, if you don't know what restrictor plate is, I don't know we should. I love restrictor plate. The only reason is because when I used to be a pretty significant NASCAR fan, like I loved restrictor plate races. They were my favorite because it was no longer about the technical, the technical. Right. So car. what restrictor plates are is they all they sort of cap the velocity that a car can go, and so it's not just about who has the most souped up engine. Right? Is that a good, right. simple definition? Yep, that's like you, mine. You, yeah. you, you're, sort of, you're sort of capped at, I don't know, let's say like 180 miles per hour or something. And you can not go above that. And so it's just more technical, more drafting, 
stuff like that. And, and it has been not by design. No one, no one said, hey, ladies, you know, why don't you just, you know, lose first round after your big title? Um, you know, and so that, you know, explicitly, but that's kind of how it shook out. And then Serena being absent. And in terms of like, they're, they're f- the five players who, six if you want to count Serena, because she did qualify for Singapore last year, even if she didn't play. Um, but the five players who didn't come back, uh, Kerber, Redvanska, uh, Keys, Sibokova, and Kuznetsova. I mean, they all sort of had their own different descents. I, I mean, Kuznetsova didn't fall all that far. She had a chance of, to be an alternate she, if she had done something she, this week in Moscow. Right. And and as, as everyone probably remembers, like she got in at the finish line last time. Yeah. She was sort of the Garcia of 2016, reeling off that Kremlin Cup uh, win at the finish line to, again, beat Conta. Poor Conta. Poor ninth place. I Conta. feel bad for Joe. I genuinely do. It's like, I really do, too. Because she had a fin- – like the last two seasons, she had great seasons. But I really thought like, you know, she's on that short list in the first, you know – six months of this season, six or seven months of this season as being, you know, could have finished on the player of the year candidacy. Oh, for sure. Right? I mean, wins Miami, wins Sydney, like two, you know, good premier runs, had a great Australian Open, just had a crap draw losing to Serena in the round of 16, uh, destroyed Wozniacki there, Um, uh, wins Miami, as as I said, uh, you know, if you play court season, Wimbledon semifinal. And she was a formidable, the thing about Conta, the thing that bums me out about her not being in Singapore, and I agree with people who are kind of like saying, I mean, I, in the grand scheme of things, I love that Garcia's there because she's playing well right now. I mean, it would have been so it makes the Singapore tournament more competitive in theory, because with with Conta slump slumping the way that she had been, you know, since Wimbledon, you didn't want somebody to kind of like show up and then just kind of be a bit of dead weight in one of the groups. Yeah. Um, so if she had been in there, yeah, yeah, and I think a few years ago, like the first year, I think we had a little bit of that where the group play was a bit dire because some of the players who were in the seven and eight slots hadn't been playing particularly well. Bouchard um, was really bad when she made it the first time. Yeah, that was that. that was that was brutal. So yeah, so it's in that way. I'm glad that she's there. But with Joe, she was such she was such she was so woven into the fabric of the 2017 season in terms of like mm-hmm. it's hard to tell the stories of this season without talking about Conta. I mean, Halep's season is almost entirely dictated by the tent poles of her matches, but against against uh, Joe and probably Maria. And Ostapenko. Like, those are the three players that kind of defined Halep's season. Um, Conta yeah. was just like this incredible foil for Venus, right? I mean, their rivalry through 2017 and 2016 has been a great one. It would have been great to see that one again. She's just like been in there and in the mix. And, and the players respect her a lot in terms of her game. So bit bummed that, that, that she's missed out on it, you know, two straight years. Hopefully, hopefully third time's the charm. For sure. Um, we got a question... Uh, about another player who missed out, uh, who just lost again today, and is sort of on the bubble, but will probably make it to Zhuhai, but I think is, I don't know if we've talked about at length on the show in a while, is Angelique Kerber, uh, who finished last year number one, was number one, held on to number one ranking still through mid-July this year, which again sort of showed how sort of odd the rankings were. The two players who held the number one ranking longest this year were Kerber and Serena. Um, and neither of them made it to the Singapore. So just a lot of weird factoids you can pull up about this, how the field shook out. And we got a question from Kanem Truix. It says, Kerber is way too good a player not to have a better 2018 than 2017, right? So what do you think? Is, is Kerber, was this year, um, was last year the outlier? Was this year the outlier? Were both outliers? 
what, what do you, where do you, where do you see Kerber's future and how should she be feeling as she sort of heads to Zhuhai with not a lot of confidence or misses Zhuhai and ends her season? I think with Kerber, it was always going to be difficult to follow up last season. I think that one of the real shames of the 2016 season, in my opinion, is how little credit Kerber really got for it. And I don't mean that like people didn't celebrate her. Of course people celebrated her. But I don't think that when you really stepped back to look at it, her season was absurd. And the reason why people didn't give her maybe the credit is A, a lot of what she was doing. I mean, she would, she lost a few big finals. So obviously, like, those titles, had she won the WTA finals, had she won the Olympic gold medal, um, some of the, you know, the other big finals that she played, maybe it would have been Wimbledon. Wimbledon, right? You know, uh, Cincinnati, I believe. Yeah, Pliskova beat her in Cincy for the number Pliskova one. speech, yep. Yeah, exactly. But But so she had put together this absurd season. And there's just, I don't know. I don't know. I, I just don't think that people really understood like how incredible it was that what she did. Now, I think that I would definitely put Kerber into the category of people who cannot self-gaslight. And I think oh, that God, no. the problem for Angie, and I, I, I remember David Kane had said this on the, the WTA Insider podcast midway through the season, and I agree with him. I'm genuinely curious as to what her season would have looked like if the hard court season had extended maybe two more weeks before it went into clay because she had started to play better. Like, um, you know, she, you know, through like Miami and and Monterey, maybe Monterey looked like a stepping stone. And then she like had to step back onto clay um, and play Fed Cup uh, where she lost to Svitolina. And then she had to play, um, you know, Stuttgart as defending champion and just didn't do well under that pressure, losing to Mladenovic, I believe. And it just was, it just was too much. And, yeah, I mean, I look the 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 numbers say that 2016 was the outlier. That's no way. There's no way around it, right? I mean, no, no season that she's played before that or after that comes close to it. But yeah. that tennis is still in her. I mean, she was fit for most of this season, um, you know, and it was just in a lot of in a lot of ways a, a ball here or there, or a handful here or there, or a different draw. A little bit of luck does have to go your way. And it felt like this year that a lot of the luck wasn't breaking her way, um, and in a lot, and in you know, going along with that, that she wasn't playing well enough to get the luck to bounce her way. Um, and so, you know, when you I think back on that 2016 season, and I think of like that absurd running forehand down the line that she hit against Pliskova in the third set at the U.S. Open that basically blew that match open, that final set open, um, and that's a ball that it lands an inch to the left. And she might lose that match, but it landed an inch to the right, and it was in. It, it just That's so it's Gordon Bombay of you, yeah. I know so, it is. Yeah. It was. <laughs> it's as simple as that. And and, but I think that you know what was so frustrating about the 2017 season for her is that she just never got any momentum ever, and yeah. that she just really stalled and was in a in a stall for most of the season. And you know, and and I think that she and Torben are both kind of scratching their heads as to why. Because she was fit. And yeah, and yeah, and just never, it just, she never seemed, she had so many chances where I thought she was going to start to gain some momentum. Even Wimbledon, maybe she beats McGrews in that Wimbledon fourth right. round. Maybe, maybe that's her tournament. I mean, McGrews did win that tournament. Kerber could have possibly rode that a little further. Or even just late in the year when she had a really good win in, I want to say, Tokyo against Pliskova. I think it was like her first top 20 win of the year. And um, Pliskova had kind of a disappointing second half also, but. Uh, Kerber 
Yeah, just I don't know. Kerber just always seems to just sort of go back into some sort of don't Kerber mode, you know, just some sort of just sort of wallowing, always sort of the cloud followed above her in some sad way uh, this year. And hopefully she can shake that off in the offseason and, and get back to being a hunter and not the hunted completely. I mean, she's going to go into Australia. Well, Zhuhai has a lot of points. If she does has does really well in Zhuhai, maybe that can reboot her already. But I wouldn't have any reason to think she will. So, um, uh, you know, she can go back in as someone who will play a higher-ranked player possibly in the third round of the Australian Open and sort of go from there as being a, uh, a yeah, a, someone looking to, you know, again, be hunter and not hunted. I don't know another analogy for that um, off the top of my head. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it's interesting. And then the other one's Radvanska... Uh, Rodzka just sort of seemed to feel like a bit, you know, just broken down physically more than anything in this season. Um, Sybil yeah, Koba, she had the foot injury that ruled her out of a lot of the tournaments, yeah. and obviously we got married this year as well. So, you know, was kind of doing getting all ready for that. So a lot going on with Aga, but I think the physicality of the game, I think, finally caught up with her, and she had been playing probably what three, four straight like really good seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and yeah, the, the body, the body gave out. And then Sibokova, I think it's just been sort of, again, had some physical issues and also just been always hot and cold. And it's not, it, she's the least surprising to me, the ones that didn't make it back in Singapore in that she, um, just had always blown sort of hot and cold and, and Madison Keats obviously had injury issues and yeah, cause that's something like we said was sort of right there. So I think Kerber is the only real dramatic fall of that group, but is what it is for Ange. She'll figure it out, hopefully. Mm-hmm. We got a, a question that we can get to uh, from another fall event coming up, asking if WTA should do something like the next gen event. Oh, this question. <laughs> but, so, so sick but, of this question. But so, but I think the answer is I don't know if we've answered it on here before, but now we know basically what the field would look like uh, if there had been a next gen event uh, somewhere. Uh, it would be Ostapenko. Barty, Kasakina, uh, Kontavite, Elise Mertens, uh, Cece Bellis, and Anna Kanya would be the top seven, and then Siniakov would be number eight. So all top 50 players, which it's just, the, I mean, the, the point why I don't think they need to is those are all so much more relevant players to the top of the tour because of, again, this previously mentioned pelotoning than we have in ATP. ATP, still only one player has mathematically qualified for Milan. That's still Zverev. The others, other oh, six, really? seven. Yeah, the other spots are all still up for grabs. That's how, like, kind of unremarkable the rest of the – or oh, how did bunched it, again they Rublev been. qualify? I feel like I saw a Rublev qualified graphic. Oh, did he just recently? Maybe, Let's like, yesterday look. or the day before or something. Okay. Well, he's number two, so he would be the next one in. Rublev made a US Open quarterfinal, so he, he'll get in. And then Kachinov, three. Chapovalov, four. Chorich, five. Jared Donaldson, six. And Young Chung, uh, seven. And Medvedev, eight. And then they're going to give a wild card to the Italian, who will probably wind up being Matteo Berrettini, who's actually pretty good, who's, like, number 15 on this list. So it's not a terrible wild card. Um, yeah, I, I just don't – I think I, – I wouldn't mind a women's event and sort of, you know um, – I think with Zhuhai, you already sort of have a bit of a, not you know, second-tier tour finals. I don't know if you need a third event like that. Um, but – I would watch a women's one if it was on offer. I just think that, you know, Barty and those players and Ostapenko won a slam. Barty was in a Premier 5 final recently. Kasakina won Charleston. Contabet was a very relevant player. I feel like they just haven't, they don't need the need, they haven't had the need for, I don't know, artificially spotlighting players because they're already in the mix. 
More or less women decide. I don't know if that's a fair assessment or, or what you think. Because I wish that I, I did like the, even if it got mocked a lot of the time, I did like a lot the of the time. Stars, if I, yeah. <laughs> a lot. I did like the Rising Stars uh, event, how it, how it actually played out, the matches in Singapore when they were there. Um, and it, it ended up very being different. very relevant. I mean, Garcia yeah. was in the final. Osaka beat her in one of the finals. Puig won, I think, one year. I mean, it, it, the WTA Rising Stars thing, as much as, yes, it was thoroughly mocked, like, viciously, it, it ended up having being relevant. I think that just going to your, because I've had this discussion at length with so many different people, because everybody either forgets that this Rising Stars thing ever existed, or they're just like, oh, let's do this. Okay, what is the purpose of the ATP Next Gen Finals? Which is a great idea for the ATP, and I'm glad that they're doing it. It's to spotlight their next gen, right? Is is to to create a showcase for their next generation of players to to play a significant event, to to get you know press, to get it on TV, to get people to know Daniil Medvedev and and Andre Rublev and and these players. Great idea. Different ecosystem. That's the ATP side. Those players are not getting an opportunity to showcase themselves on a weekly basis because they are not coming up with the results that allow themselves to showcase themselves on a weekly basis. On the women's side, as you just reeled off, again, different ecosystem. Every week is a showcase for our under-21s. Belinda Bencic won Toronto. You know, I mean, like back in the day. I mean, when you start to break down, you know, Madison Keys has made a Grand Slam final at 21, 22 years old. At the end of the day, when you create those artificial age, um, you know, cutoffs to say, okay, if you're 21 and under, then you would be WTA, quote unquote, next gen. Those players are winning tournaments. They're making quarterfinals of slams. They're making semifinals of slams. It doesn't make sense. I mean, our, the young players, Assisi Bellis, is getting her her platform every, any week she plays. It, it, so I just think that the the, <clears throat> the mentality behind it just doesn't just doesn't work. And and one of the things that that definitely you know, and I want I don't know if the ATP is experiencing this at all, but I know that for the WTA there was definitely probably an issue because I remember when I was reporting on it um, when I was with Sports Illustrated, it came up a few times with players and agents. Nobody wants to be a next gen or a rising star, really, like. You, a lot of times, if you were to go to back in the day and say Madison Keys, like you're part of the WTA Rising Stars initiative, the her team would be like, no, she's not. She's here. Like the Rising Stars thing is for anonymous players. And it becomes like kind of like a weird, you know, slap in the face a little bit. And which is why I'm very curious, genuinely, if Zverev does end up playing Milan. I know that he's qualified and everything, but he's playing London He's not next gen. He's now gen. Just like Curios is now gen. Um, you know, and it, age cutoffs aside, a team, like those players are the players that make up the, the ATP elite as at, at the moment. Why spend a week playing in Milan and extending your season? Right? I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily make sense, especially if there are no ranking points on offer. I don't know what the situation is there quite yet. Um Whatever. So I don't know. I mean, I th- look, we would all, one thing that has been very, very clear in the comments that I read on social media all the time is like, everybody wants more tennis and everybody wants to come up with like interesting different ways to rejigger to create more tennis. We have a lot of tennis. These <laughs> players do. do not need to keep playing. I'm sorry. Like let them go home and not have to play some 
some exhibition for your entertainment when they play 48 weeks out of the year. Just leave them alone. <laughs> Zverev, Zverev is so far lapping the competition on this, more so than it feels like on that group that Ostapenko would be, just because I think the other people right. have a lot more ranking points. And Ostapenko had, you know, a couple select weeks, but started this year not sort of on different platform. And Rublev, I'm sorry, and Zverev was already sort of looking ahead of this group at the beginning of the year and just sort of extended that gap. But yeah, just some of the matchups in here, just like I'm trying to think, like, would I get that excited for a Chorich Rublev match? I don't, and those are like number two and five. Like, I don't know that I would. Like, I'm not sure. And what do we is really want to see them play? Like, when exciting. you talk about, like, um, sorry to interrupt. Um, Go ahead. When you talk about, uh, like, a showcase, isn't the more important thing oftentimes are the things that make you, make a player resonate with you or catches your attention is how they do against the elite? Yeah. Like, I want to see, yeah, like, I want to see Chorich play Novak. And I want to, and maybe, and maybe Chorich gets his butt whipped, but maybe he makes more, you know, he looks like he's more of a, a threat than he was the last time you played him. Or even like a Gerald Donaldson or like a Rublev or like whoever. Like, I want to see them play the best players and see how they, they measure up. I kind of don't really care if they beat up on each other. Yeah. Unless they are of the certain, you know, obviously the Chorich, uh, what was it, Chorich Zverev? Was that the match? No, Chorich. Who did Chorich beat at the U.S. Open? Out on grandstand? Uh, he, beat, he beat Zverev. He beat Zverev. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. Zverev. Like, yeah, so that's so that, fair enough. And, and there is sort of a, there is a different, you know, sort of heat to it when it's two guys who are young guys. Like, I remember the, like, Shapovalov Zverev semifinal in Canada being, like, pretty, like, easy to hype and understand like oh these could be like two young guys they're sort of same even as Shapovalov is a lot younger and more unproven they're both uh you know in the same sort of up-and-comer demographic and it's cool to see them hit maybe it will be sort of I don't know a uh bit of a playpen brawl for them all and you know it feels like an advanced I don't know it's just like an advanced juniors tournament again and and this is why Zverev it would feel like Zverev um who will be eligible for this again next year by the way also he's that young um would be sort of scaling down like does he need what is it it would feel almost like i'm going to a challenger to show up this yeah tournament. i just so yeah, for a know. guy who's so like ambitious and and has like this very sophisticated team around him and obviously i mean i hope that he plays it because it would be a huge boon for the atp and the tour needs him to play it mm-hmm. um but you would absolutely understand like him being like no like i'm wiped my season is done i need to i need every week of an off season matters and i need that time off to like then i can start my training early for australia like it it just doesn't seem like an event that would pay off for him yeah i do like i do like in theory the automatic the ranking point based qualifying they have compared to the fan vote that largely determined the wta one for although sure. at the same time at the same time there's possibility if Medvedev is right behind Chung for this last direct spot, and if Medvedev passes Chung, and you get a lot less geographic diversity, and you get three Russians out of seven. Yeah, but I mean like that's too much. Also, yeah, that's the thing though is that like you know again the 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 next gen finals is to to kind of showcase the next gen. I think the WTA Rising Stars Invitational was more to kind of showcase more global reach. It was in a lot of ways. If I recall my reporting on it, um, in a lot of ways, the WTA Rising Stars initiative was really in an attempt to bolster Asia. 
Yeah. But they couldn't just have an Asian invitational because nobody would necessarily care about that, right? So they created like the regions and the zones. So you had like whatever, North America and Europe and then maybe rest of the world and something and maybe... I think it was just two Asians and two rest of the world, as I remember. Okay, something like that. So, but that's why it was... So again, it goes towards like, what is the purpose of the thing that you've created? Um, So in in that sense, it was like a way to get Zhu Lin um, alongside great, you know, rising star players... Um, but it wasn't necessarily to like try and get the best rising stars to compete against each other. That wasn't really yeah. what it was about. Right. Yeah. And there were some things like if you were playing like Moscow or playing Luxembourg, you weren't eligible for it. Exactly. Like yeah. So yeah, it was, it was, a and you had to opt in on it anyway. Like if yeah. it, again, you know, like that, those years, like I don't think Keys was ever part of the voting because her team didn't yeah. want her to be part of the voting. And um, remember, a lot like, of Shelby, as well. Shelby Rogers made like a huge campaign for it and got herself yep. there, even though she wasn't really on Jabour. People were yeah on yeah Jabour too. Um, yeah, but I was thinking Shelby because Shelby wasn't someone people were really talking about at all. Mm-hmm. But she sort of made a push for it and, and got in and, and eventually made a French quarterfinal. So, and I would I love know, to see actually spot. weirdly like an aspect of the ATP one being a fan vote because like wouldn't you rather see like a boob like there just uh, for like. Yeah. The giggles. Tiafo, Tiafo is missing. Yeah, Tiafo. Yeah, exactly. Look at Tiafo like, would be way gigglier. Yeah, it's almost like you would want to make it a vote because then you'd get like the the people that the fans are the most interested in. But then, I suppose that's also kind of not the purpose of it, which is to expose fans to players that maybe they don't know. But then that kind of like undercuts the value of the competition. So it's. Yeah, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. It's tough arranging those things. I don't. I mean, I hope that it works out really well for the ATP because I think it's a really good idea because we've always talked about how they do need to showcase the next group of players, the post Roger Rafa Novak Andy era. Exactly, and you were getting to sort of the reason for doing it. Like for Singapore Rising Stars, it was to showcase Asia and how Asia does have tennis, and for this one, it's to be there is a future beyond Roger and Rafa. It's sort of right. a it's sort of the mission statement of the event. Uh, so yeah, so that makes sense. Otherwise, yeah, the rest of the tour is winding down. I don't think on the men's side, I don't think Murray's coming back. All that's not official yet. Um, and yeah, I I just feel like the men's side is sort of just sort of limping across the finish line. Yeah, I mean, no Novak, no Andy for most of the no, season. No, no, no K, no Stan, no Raonic. I mean, these are these aren't small players, you know, <laughs> like yeah. That's that's a big that's a that's a legitimate chunk of of, I mean, yeah, those are all World Tour Finals players, like repeated World Tour Finals players who have been like the staples of this of of that competition in the last uh, you know, last few years. So, it's um, yeah, it's been, I don't know. It'd be interesting. I would actually really like to know, and maybe this is like probably a discussion that's maybe better on Facebook. But I'm genuinely curious because I haven't. I think this year is the year that I followed the, the ATP the least probably in the last like five or six years. Mm-hmm. Um, just combination of work factors and Andy wasn't playing and like whatever. <laughs> but <laughs> but I'm curious to know like was it as enjoyable or does like the, the, the does the tennis fandom split so much just to be like Roger and Rafa people? Right. That it just never mattered. Like, it was just really, really enjoyable and awesome to watch them win all the time, <laughs> which I can totally understand that being, like, a, an appeal. Oh, God. Yeah, if you are a Roger or Rafa fan, you had an amazing year. Right. Your fave came out of relative nowhere and defied their ranking and expectations to win two slams. 
And if you're Rafa, if you're Roger, if you're Rafa, you'd be number one. And if you're Roger, you get to beat Rafa four times. I mean, like everything kind of shook out amazing for both of them. And, they, and I think and is that, that is, I guess my question yeah. is like, is that enough? Yeah. Was that enough? And if it is fair, okay, then I just, I just don't, I don't understand or not understand. That's putting a, a value judgment on it because I don't mean to, but like, I don't. I don't I clearly have a blind spot then. That's on me. But it just seemed to me that like, you know, and again, and I do like to emphasize this, like two separate ecosystems. But like it just felt like a lot of times whenever I would I did have time and I would pull up like the ATP order of play, I would just see a bunch of matches where the that didn't seem all that important because of the it's at the big tournaments like the Masters and and the Slams because you just kind of felt like well, it's the end result's going to be the same because Roger yeah. and Rafa were so ahead of the pack than everyone and, else this season. And that's where I think the WTA sort of had the ATP beat is that they did have the fairly chaotic results, like 1 through 30 in the rankings could all beat each other um, routinely, but they also could all go all the way. And here there was some, like, especially that bottom half of the U.S. Open draw for the men, like wild stuff happened there, but you pretty much knew that whoever made it out was going to lose in the final. Right, it was hard and, to build a dramatic narrative yeah yeah true so so that's that there's i don't think i think someday soon maybe 2018 i think the atp is ready for its sastapenko moment i think they're getting there i think they're gonna get there someone someone weird is gonna win a slam i think if in 2018 or 2019 constitutes as weird for the atp i mean it wouldn't be zverev like that's not no 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 no, weird nick wouldn't be weird maybe somebody along the lines of like and obviously Osmeko is a special brand of weird in all her wonderful ways. Um, but maybe someone along the lines of uh, let me look at the rankings here. Um, like a like a I don't know like a Chung or like a um, like a uh, Medvedev something like that. How dare you skip slam. over Jared Donaldson? Well, Jared Donaldson's such an establishment favorite already <laughs> <laughs> on this podcast. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess, or like a Kachanov, maybe. But even then, that's not really. I mean, maybe. I yeah, don't know. I don't know. It'll be different. It'll be a different landscape. There'll be some new people. We'll find out soon enough. Uh, any other thoughts on uh, on tennis? I put a plug in in advance for your wonderful WT Insider coverage of uh, Singapore. Which will be coming up soon, uh, and we won't. I don't, we're not going to do any sort of draw preview show or anything on here. But you will do all sorts of that stuff, I imagine, and all sorts of coverage of the round robin and every match in there should be compelling. I can't think of any sort of matchup I wouldn't watch of those eight women, um, for better or worse. It should all just be a complete mix, and for all better, actually. And yeah, I, I'm looking forward to that tournament. Uh, for what times it'll be on reasonable hours. <laughs> Whatever happened to your crazy sleeping schedule where you watched tennis in the middle of the night? What happened? I'll try to get on it. I got I fell on and off of it. Like I was weirdly like up a lot for Wuhan and for Tokyo and Seoul. And then like I wasn't really for Beijing and Shanghai. But I'll get I'll cycle back to it. I'm not like a I just I'm not stable enough in my um nocturnalness to fully switch for that long. I wow. I do I Getting do old, vaguely correspond. I, I know. But I do vaguely correspond to circadian daylight. I guess. <laughs> fair. Fair, fair. Uh, yeah. Any other thoughts? How was your um, Asia trip overall? Otherwise, off court. How was 
your uh, your four, fourth time doing this swing, is that right? Yeah, I think so. Um, <laughs> just count by how many years. Uh, well, I've been like I'm one of the few people who have done Wuhan every year. Right. Not just like journalist wise, but also tour wise and players. It's just a whole thing. Like I've actually been there all four years. It's great. I mean, so far so good. I mean, Wuhan continues to improve as a tournament, which is great to see. Um, the hotel that they switched to was really nice. Um, Beijing's Beijing, pretty standard, quite dramatic just because of all of, yeah, this, it was all Halep all the time and shout out to Romania and just how much you guys love Simona Halep because, ooh, <laughs> traffic numbers went through the roof, yo. Um, <laughs> That's good. so, so yeah, so, so that was, that was quite great. And, um, obviously great to be kind of there along the ride. Whenever these players have these weird runs and you're like with them, talking to them like every single day for like two weeks or three weeks or something like that it's always kind of a weird thing so like it's um, fun though i mean it really it's is. it's super fun and but there does come a moment like right around like their eighth or ninth match maybe seventh <laughs> eighth or ninth match where you're kind of like you look at each other and you're like i kind of don't have any questions i just i'm just like really surprised you're doing this you know yeah. um so being a being there for garcia was was quite great um yeah and then it, yeah asia's great i mean the food's wonderful always an adventure but i haven't really been off doing non-tennis things the tennis has kept me quite busy because yeah every day was was fairly fairly dramatic so what was that what was that big box store you went to Wuhan again it was like a target or a walmart or something walmart too yeah yeah my legendary my, my legendary sports illustrated story yeah yeah nope haven't been back there um don't even know if what it's w- still there what was the weirdest thing you got from room service Unexpectedly. The weirdest thing that I, I mean, you, you, kept, oh. you, you were tweeting about how you were ordering one thing and getting another. I mean, so thing. like I was having drinks with my coworkers like in the hotel lobby, and like everybody was ordering and like most people were just having beer, or wine, or whatever. And I was like, "Can I just get, you know, some um, just vodka with ice?" And like one of my coworkers was like, "Oh my gosh, like that's super hardcore. Like you know, you're really you're really going at it tonight." And I was like, no, I mean, I just order it because they can't possibly screw that up. And so then the girl comes back and I see her and I'm like, see the tray. And I'm like, that glass is not clear. <laughs> and she hands it to me. And I did. And I like, as I'm like moving it towards my, my mouth to take a sip, I burst out laughing. And my friend's like, what? I'm like, she gave, she gave me Jameson and there's not even any ice in here. <laughs> so I ordered a vodka rocks and I got a whiskey neat. <laughs> Um, and I was just amused it by all of it. It still did the job, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. No, the thing is that every time they screwed up, it was like a total upgrade. Like every <laughs> time we, I ordered something from service and they brought something different, it was delicious and way better than what I thought I was ordering. And then I would try to order the thing that they brought me, but they're like, that's not on the menu. And I'm like, but then how did you get that? Like, it, that doesn't make sense. So that was funny. In Beijing, like, so I ordered like room service breakfast and I just ordered, like, the egg breakfast, right? And so, you know, like, in America, like, on a menu, it'll list, like, all the things that come with it. So you just assume, like, so they're telling you this is what it comes with. And then I just usually tell them, like, when there's an either or, you tell them which one, right? So it's, like, sure. sausage or bacon. So you say, can I get the egg breakfast with sausage? And then everything's supposed to come with. Well, so I did that. And then, like, my food came. And it was literally just two fried eggs and sausage, like, my decision to tell them sausage overrid everything. <laughs> oh. So I didn't get hash browns. I didn't get toast. I didn't get, you know, tomatoes, mushrooms, like whatever was supposed to come with it. I was like, oh, 
But every time, like, I would deep, I would think about it. I'm like, oh, I see what, I see what, yeah, I see what I did there. <laughs> um, also, in China, if you order French toast, they do not have syrup, so just expect that they will give oh. you like, um, like sugar, like a bowl of sugar. Oh, that's okay. Which is a very different. It's just fine, you know. But it's just you're like, oh, I was really looking forward to like some maple syrup French toast, but that's my fault. That's my bad. That's fair. That's yeah. fair. If you want some maple syrup French toast, you should go to Saguenay next week, where Re- Rebecca Moreno is making her comeback. Oh yes, excited. If you need, if you need good reason to go to Canadian cuisine, and I guess yeah, maple syrup is Canadian. That's that's fair. Um, there's like a lot of like I don't know if you were reading the articles about it, but they're fascinating. There's a lot of like maple syrup organized crime. Oh yeah, there's like it's maple syrup great. like gun running. Oh yeah. Like there was one really great like long read from like maybe two years ago. That, I think like, we're thinking the same thing, yeah. Uh, like where Quebec is like regulating like how much maple syrup the farmers can produce. And so the farmers are like overproducing, but then like running that stuff like over the border to sell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like there's like maple syrup checkpoints. It's a whole thing. It's fascinating. It's a whole thing with Canada. And it's been a whole thing with this episode of No Challenge to Thank you guys for listening to our show. If you want to follow along and you're not listening, you can do so uh, on Facebook, facebook.com slash ncrpodcast. And yes, send us your comments and thoughts on anything on the episode there. We like to have discussion threads going, all sorts of different topics. I'm sure you disagree with most of what we said on here in some way, shape, or form. So just let us know uh, how wrong we are uh, there. And also tweet us, ncr underscore tennis on Twitter. Uh, our email address is nochallengedemanding at gmail.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes and a podcasting app of your choice. That's it. I'm working on postcards. Courtney reunited me with our stash of postcards at the U.S. Open. So getting more and more of those out soon. Apologies again for how absurdly long those are taking, but they are coming slowly, but surely, but slowly uh, to your doorstep and mailbox. And yeah, I guess that's about it. And you have a rant rave outside of what we've covered, Courtney? Who? Um, some things in the world. Anything right. in Japan? I feel like Japan is very stimulating. I mean, me. everything about Japan is wonderful. I just, I just really feel like, and I tweeted this, and I think like people kind of misunderstood my tweet, but I was like, all food should be food made in Japan, and I don't mean that all food should be Japanese food, but like Japan just makes food better than like some of the best cheeseburgers I've ever had were like in Japan. Um, I'm surprised they would do I, cheese well in Japan. Well, they import everything. Okay. But they get it done, and it's delicious. Um, just and and just the thought that goes in everything that that and it, and it's just cultural and um and I I'm, I'm always fascinated by it and I always love it. Like at the Narita Airport, they have a whole system that allows you to use carts on escalators. Now, like in order, if you stop and you think about it, in order to have that, then you have to have like the cart. And have the carts like specifically manufactured with the escalators in mind. Like you have to build specific escalators. Not the and these aren't escalators like the ones you have at Target where you can like put the cart into the thing right, next to it of, and yeah. it like conveyor belts up. No, it's like literally you can just like put it on the escalator. And the way that the 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 cart is designed, so long as you're holding the brake, it just it's perfect. Like the slope and everything, nothing, no, it's never a problem. Like. You know, and, and just little things like that. There's just, Japan is wonderful. I had a blast. The food was incredible. I just, I love it so much. It's always like the perfect transition from China to Singapore because Singapore is like, also has like lots of rules, but it's like a little bit more kind of like rule-ish, um, whereas mm-hmm. Japan's a little bit more like anything goes. But that was great. Um, what was I going to say? I watched The Beguiled and Beatrice at dinner on the plane. 
Okay. And I was like kind of a little disappointed by both. I had like real high hopes for each. Not I high hopes. Either I had high hopes for, for Beatrice at Dinner, which is a Salma Hayek movie, um, which is pretty good. She's like this um, like kind of uh, Mexican uh, metaphysical healer who her car breaks down at a client's house in Newport Beach. And so her client, who's very nice, like invites her to stay over for dinner. And it's a whole thing. Um, and it was I thought it was either going to be funnier. I don't know what I thought, but it was it was just kind of there. And then Begu- The Beguiled was the newest Sofia Coppola movie with um, Nicole Kidman and Kirsten Dunst and Colin Farrell. It's a remake mm. of a 70s movie starring Clint Eastwood. Um, and I really just – I mean, I kind of think I understand, like, what it was all about. I just don't think that it was necessary. Like, I'm like, for someone to commit to making this movie like Sofia Coppola did, and I'm not much of a Coppola fan, but, like, for her to, like, spend time making this movie, I'm kind of like, Why? For what? Not really sure that it made sense, but okay. That's fair. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, no, it's good. To, it's good to be baffled by projects that make no sense. That's just appropriate viewership, right there. It's not even baffled. Um, like I understood what it was trying to do. I just like didn't like. It just had no lasting resonance. Yeah. Maybe it was just a pretty thing to look at. I suppose maybe, but I don't know. That's fair. Weird. Um. My my sort of rant will be about <laughs> this is coming out of complete nowhere. But while I was building some IKEA furniture a couple weeks ago and watching, uh, I guess it was what tournament was it? Beijing or Wuhan? Forget. Um, I was after that ended. I watched a couple movies on my computer that I hadn't seen before that I had been saving for a while, and I was very disappointed by the movie Snow Day, which was a kids movie that came out in two thousand. And it just wasn't good. It was remarkably formulaic. It didn't get good reviews or anything, so I'm not, like, breaking any new ground here. I'm just saying I was very disappointed because it was made by the creators of Pete and Pete, which is, like, one of the best shows best of shows. all time. Best show. The best. It, nothing has ever spoken to the absurdity. You're very of, Pete and uh, Pete, by the way. Actually, right, exactly. about it. I'm like, but yeah, nothing, that is in your DNA. <laughs> nothing has ever spoke right to the absurdity of being a ginger quite as well as Pete and Pete. <laughs> it's 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 phenomenal. And I had really high hopes for Snow Day. I had, like, none of the same cast. And it was originally planned as, like, a Pete and Pete movie with, like, you know, like a movie with that same cast. And they held on to it for too long and got different kids. And they just weren't as good. And it was, um, yeah, it was pretty bad and a disappointing watch. Um, but uh, upgrade for the way I've watched more things now is I now have a second, I have a desktop monitor on my desk that I just plug my... Uh, laptop into when I'm working or just even just not working at my desk and I have twice the screen and it makes my life wonderful I know a lot of people have this in offices now but as somebody who doesn't have an office having it at home is just a kind of a game changer I recommend if you have have anywhere near the real estate to do it going going two screens it's It's why like everybody's like how can you watch so much stuff like all the time like because I have two screens on my desk so I always have something running on one screen, whether it's a movie or a TV show or like whatever, and then I'm working on the other one. Yeah, and it so, works, and they totally, and it's, it's like great. very easy to not get too sucked into one or the other. Like you get you, it's remarkably easy to sort of multitask when they're both they're sort of holding equal real estate in your uh, field of vision. Right, like don't you know, like watch like foreign films that have subtitles. Oh, because I've tried that and that was a disaster. But and obviously some some TV shows or whatever that are more visual, uh, and movies like doesn't work. But like I'm really into dialogue, um, so I could just listen to people talking all day long. Like The West Wing is a great show to just run in the background because all it is is dialogue. Yeah. 
imagine. For sure. And that is that is it for us in our dialogue here. See you guys later. Bye bye. Bye. I think that it's time that I should just let you go. Let you go. So I'll tell it to your face instead of tell it to you on the phone. You see, I 